In the Reading Corner today, joining me from Paris, France, is Yasmin Abdul-Majid. Yasmin is a Sudanese-born Australian writer, broadcaster, and award-winning social advocate with a background in mechanical engineering. And if you thought that was a lot, just wait till you hear me read the rest. She founded her first organisation, Youth Without Borders, at the age of 16, published her debut memoir, Yasmin's Story, with Penguin Random House at the age of 24, and in 2019, followed up with her first fiction book for young readers, You Must Be Layla. In fact, we're going to be talking shortly about the second book in that series, uh, Listen Layla. She was also selected for the 2020 Soho Theatre Writers Lab in London, as well as for the prestigious 2021 Australia Council Keezing Studio Writers Residency in Paris. And that's where you are at the moment. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase some of the rest because there's so much here. You've been a an advocate for empowering women and uh, people of young people of colour. You've got the 2018 Young Voltaire Award for Free Speech. You don't do anything by halves. I mean, this is really coming through here. You gave a TED Talk, which I think was based on your memoir, wasn't it? What Does My Headscarf Mean to You? Um, And at the time that this was written, that had been viewed over two million times. Your broadcasting portfolio is very diverse and there's something quite exciting about it from a family of racers, actually, uh, because you presented the national TV show Australia Wide, a podcast on becoming a Formula One driver. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it's amazing. And not only that, you have also been an engineer on oil and gas rigs for four years, as well as being an accredited journalist. For most people, that's enough for a lifetime. So what can I say? But welcome. Thank you, Nikki. I didn't know it was a family of races at your end. I actually, I ran a race car team. Sorry to add to the bite, but that was like all I wanted to do when I was in university, actually, race cars. So, And I was the only one who loved race cars in my family. So I am quite a bit jealous of a family of races, actually. But I read most of your bio. I mean, I did paraphrase because there's a lot more uh, there. I did it because, A, I couldn't have done any better. Um, and I'd only have been, you know, rejigging what's already written there. But also because I think it just gives us a really good way into thinking about this book. Because the thing that leaps out at you is this amazing heroine. And I can't help but feel that she is partly, if not exclusively, based on you. So you're going to have to tell us a bit about Layla. (laughs) I would love to. Layla, oh, Layla. I do love Layla. Layla in Listen, Layla, which is the the second book in the series, is 14 years old. And she is an adventure-loving, inventing kid who really doesn't, I suppose, doesn't see the world the way that everybody else sees the world. You know, she sees the world as a as a place of possibility where anything can happen and where you can invent your way out of any problem. And, you know, she talks, she kind of speaks her mind and that sometimes gets her into trouble. Uh, but she is earnest and honest and open hearted. And I'd like to think a little bit, you know, she's funny. She's funny. And the way that you engage with her is 
she talks about and observes all of the the tough things and challenges a kid like her will face in life, but often with like a wry smile or a or a bit of a joke that lightens the situation but still allows you to feel what's really going on. Mm. She's definitely sees the day and um what you're saying about her humor it's there's a slight it's not self-deprecating because she knows her own value actually uh but she can laugh at herself exactly and i think that's i think that's a really wonderful quality i i think my dad would say it's something that both sudanese and australian people have in common this this way of you know joking about ourselves in a way that isn't dismissive um but is a way of of making of perhaps you know, I often say there are ways that we joke about things that make you part of the group that include you and there are jokes that exclude, right, mm-hmm. that make you feel like an outsider. And I think Layla's always quite careful to, to make jokes that show, you know, how much she and everybody else are a part of, you know, whatever group, whether it's family mm-hmm. or community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I really liked um, from fairly early on uh, in the book um, was her friendship group. It's actually quite unusual to have one female and two male friends. Mm. And I really loved that. It just felt very genuine. Yeah, that was something that I didn't even realise I was doing consciously when I was thinking about the kinds of friends that Layla would have. But I grew up, and especially in high school, my friends were typically boys who had similar interests in my interests, whether, you know, we don't, I wouldn't say interests are inherently gendered, but I liked cars and making things and, you know, climbing up trees, whatever. These were the things that the boys were interested in. And so I ended up having mostly friends that were boys, but also it was important to me that these were not friendships that were infused with sexual tension and all these sorts of things that you tend to find in stories where girls and boys are friends, right? This is just an innocent group of people who all happen to be of different genders. And, and there's joy in that. And there is, I think, by opening with that, it allows hopefully some of the readers to, to think of different possibilities as well, because I think that's one of the wonderful things that books can do. Mm. Let's go into the plot a little bit here. Um, at the start of the book, Layla is getting ready for a competition an international competition. Tell us a bit about that. So a little bit of a spoiler alert if you haven't read the first book. There is a big robotics invention competition called the Grand Design Turismo. And at the end of You Must Be Layla, which is the previous book, Layla joins the winning team of the the state competition, which is actually headed by her kind of nemesis, Peter. She joins the team and at the beginning of this book, we meet them and they're preparing for the international grand design turismo, right? They've won the national championship and they're heading to the international competition, which is being held in Germany. And so they're they're having conversations, preparing for whether or not they create a new invention, what they're going to do and so on. And also there's this big announcement of something called the Special International Invention Tour. Now, the Special International Invention Tour is where somebody gets selected to go on a tour of the world, meeting amazing inventors. They go to Beijing and Addis and places, Paris even, to to meet inventors, to be inspired. It's like the dream. And Layla gets picked. And so this is Layla. This is the beginning of the book. Layla gets picked for this incredible tour. They're on their way to Germany. It's all happening. She's so excited about the summer that's coming up. Mm-hmm. And then, dun, 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 should I continue? 
Well, I'm just going to take us there in a minute, yeah. because as I was reading uh, the story, I'm thinking, this is a really joyful story. <laughs> but surely you get to know that you've won the competition at the end. Yes. <laughs> What's going to happen? Because for it to be a story, something's got to go wrong. Something has to go wrong. Somewhere. And it does in quite big style, really. So basically, Layla finds out that her grandmother in Sudan is ill and she's in hospital and naturally the family are going to fly back to the Sudan. And this is where the kind of complication Mm. in the story uh, comes about. So although she was born in Sudan, it's not a place where she feels entirely at home, is it? Uh, It says she was trying to make sense of the difference uh, she feels that she should belong, but she doesn't quite belong. Definitely. And belonging is a funny thing, isn't it? And mm. so I think what we're exploring in this book with Leila is, is a universal experience of being like, okay, I used to belong here, maybe. I feel more comfortable here, maybe. That question of where do we fit, it's not one that Leila feels, she's not overwrought or she's not, mm-hmm. you know, overrun with confusion but it's something she's trying to figure out and Mm. she hasn't quite put her finger on it Mm. um would you like me to read that would be a really good thing (laughs) (laughs) here's something I prepared earlier so I'm going to read from Layla arrives in Sudan with her family and they've had their first night's sleep and this is her waking up on the first day in Sudan Layla started waking herself up The room was dark and the single bed she lay in felt unfamiliar. She reached down and felt the light sheet draped over her, the thin blanket rough on her fingers. Where was she? How had she got there? Layla scratched her head, stubby fingers fighting through knots to reach her scalp. The last thing she remembered was sitting in the back of a pickup, breathing in the moist air as they crossed the Blue Nile Bridge, Tutti Island on their left, yelling exuberantly into the wind. Oh, we're in Sudan. Layla smiled as she remembered, wiggling in her soft yellow cotton jalabia. And it was morning, so she could catch the milkman too. See the leaven, here I come. I can't wait to be a milkwoman again, riding the donkey and spreading the lactose. The local milkman, Amu Amar, Layla remembered, would come around every morning on a grey donkey. Layla had named it Bolt. Sometimes, if he had enough time, Amu Umar would let the kids jump on the back of the wooden platform he sat on and ride around the neighbourhood with him. It was like a Sudani carriage, but much less fancy than the ones in fairy tales. Layla thought it was such a fun and environmentally friendly way to get around. They really should consider it in Brisbane, though donkeys do poo quite a lot. Layla had always loved hanging out with Cedar Liban, despite the auntie saying it wasn't what proper girls did. What is a proper girl anyway? Then, just as suddenly as she'd woken, her face dropped. Layla's brain had slowly shifted into gear, reminding her why they had come to the country of her birth in the first place. Layla sighed, then looked at the digital clock on the top of the cupboard. The red light of the clock was blinking. 159, 159, 159. If the light was blinking a strange time like that, it usually meant the electricity had gone out during the night. The electricity cut out every so often in Sudan, especially when it was really hot and most people were using fans or air conditioning. 
The bed creaked as Layla shifted her weight on the thin mattress and dropped her feet to the ground, tentatively searching for her shib-shib. The floors were always covered in a thin layer of dust, no matter how hard you cleaned, so everyone wore slippers or flip-flops all the time. But flip-flops were exclusively inside shoes. Do you want people to think you're a beggar? The aunties would ask admonishingly if she even thought about going outside without the proper attire on her feet. What's wrong with beggars? They're people too, Layla would retort. But that never quite convinced anyone. Aunties can be so shady sometimes. Layla quietly navigated her way around the room, sneaking towards the adjoining mini salon. She passed the twins sharing a bed and wrapped up in each other's arms. They loved to hug when they went to sleep. It was adorable. Ozzy in another bed and Yusra in another. Ma'ab and Mohammed were sleeping outside. That was the way things worked in Sudan. Everyone shared rooms and beds and lived on top of one another. The mini salon was the heartbeat of the household, and it was also the room that connected all the main areas of the building. One side was the kids' room, where Layla was sleeping with her siblings and cousin. On the other side was the adults' room, where Khal Marwan and his wife, Amal, were sleeping. The mini salon then opened up to the main section of the house, a large space that included the guest salon, the dining table, and an entry to the kitchen off to the side. A soft curtain of beads separated the mini salon from the main guest area offering a bit of privacy in a house design that was decidedly public, like many other Sudanese-style houses in the neighbourhood. In the mini-salon, the analogue clock on the wall said it was just after 5.30am. The large, circular timepiece ticked loudly in the silence. 5.30am! Layla must be jet-lagged. Changing time zone was the only reason she ever woke up so early. What to do, what to do. Layla considered doing some GDT work while she waited for everyone to get up. She would have to find a way, somehow, to balance being in Sudan for her family and fulfilling her role in the GDT. Yes, technically she wasn't supposed to be in the team anymore, but she wasn't ready to quit the GDT just yet and give up her spot on the international tour. Layla hadn't officially resigned or even told anyone apart from Dina and the boys that she had left the country. So if she just kept the work up, Maybe she could get away with it. Maybe she just wouldn't mention to Peter that she was in Sudan. Was that bad? Mm. (laughs) I tell you, I could listen to you tell me stories all day. So one of the other things in the way that the book is written, there's quite a lot of Arabic Mm. words in there, which are supported very much by the context. So even if you're not an Arabic speaker, you should be able to work out what it means. But of course, there's a very helpful glossary at the back. And I was very interested in the use of numerals. I wonder Mm. if you could tell us a little bit about that. Numerals instead of letters. Yeah, it's so interesting, actually. I remember when You Must Be Layla first came out, we didn't put an explanation at the front of the book that the numerals were used instead of letters. And somebody wrote in saying, you have quite a lot of errors in your text. There are numbers everywhere. (laughs) So in Arabic, there are many sounds that don't have English equivalents, like the letter ayn or kha. And instead of writing approximate letters, what Arabic... um, writers really or people who speak Arabic have done and this kind of developed over text actually over text messaging is they started using numbers numerals instead of certain sounds so the letter ayn is a three the letter sod is a nine the letter kha is a five and so throughout the book 
you'll see these these different sounds. And I wondered, you know, whether I should use approximates because some people find it a bit jarring, but it does take you a little bit of time to get used to it. But I, I kind of like the idea that there's something a little bit almost foreign or inaccessible, but once you know the trick, you'll let into a whole other way of appreciating the text. Yeah, yeah. I, I really did love and appreciate that. Um, we've already said that Layla's called to Sudan because of her grandmother being sick, but there are other things going on in Sudan too. And maybe not many people know about the political mm. context. And I think it would be nice to know a little bit more about that. In fact, I, I think I probably don't know as much as I should know. So Sudan, my parents left Sudan in 1992, shortly after a man named Omar al-Bashir came into power. And at the end of 2018, people started rising up against Omar al-Bashir. And people had tried to stand up against him before, so nobody really thought that this would be any different. But it was. And so in 2019, people on the ground in the country, but also diaspora from around the world, you know, did everything they could to depose this dictator and was successful um, in the middle of 2019, which was huge and amazing. And I was writing the first draft of Listen Leila at the time. And I mean, I was so absorbed in this world my own cousin was actually very sadly shot and killed in the protest. And so it was all, it was all very real. It was all, as you say, not something that everybody knew about, right? I was doing a lot of educating and that's, I, I, that was fine. I didn't mind doing the educating, but I thought it would be such a unique opportunity to be able to educate people about what was going on in Sudan through a fictional context and also introduce introduce readers to, you know, historical elements of Sudanese culture. You know, we have more pyramids than, than Egypt. We have, a you know, an ancient civilization called the Kingdom of Kush, all these sorts of things that even Layla doesn't know about. And, and the grandma teaches Layla about these things and hopefully teaches, you know, readers as well. And so this book was an opportunity for me to honor that fight, but also I think share some of the things that I'm really proud of in Sudan. Mm. And how are things in Sudan now? Are they settling well? In terms of political upheaval, like there was a transitional government that came into power. And and from that point of view, it's kind of not all going exactly to plan, but has kind of been progressing. The tough thing, though, and this is, I think, the thing that people kind of forget whenever there's a revolution is that for your everyday person, life is hard when there's no system. The electricity cuts out for many hours a day. Things are super expensive. It's difficult to get petrol. And it's so complex. Like it's a country that has, it's very wealthy in oil and other resources. So lots of, there are lots of other political interests going on. And so, you know, for your everyday person, for people like my family, they don't really care about all the political interests. They just want to live their life, but it's very, very difficult. However, I do think that the, the Sudanese people, and there's so many young people in Sudan, the population is very young, they, they want their country to be the best version of itself. And so they will continue to fight for that. And that's something I'm, I'm really proud of. Mm. We're going to go back to the story now then. And, of course, somebody like Layla, she wants to have a hand in, you know, fighting for something political in the fight for freedom and justice. It's just that it's not really her fight and so there are some big life lessons for Layla 
it, this is essentially a coming of age for her as well, isn't it? This trip to Sudan. Definitely. And I think some of, it wasn't easy to tease out exactly how I was going to write this part of the book, because I think there are some really dense and serious things that Layla's grappling with. You know, she wasn't a kid who was very political like from the get-go, right? She came to Sudan and she was like, oh, there's this revolution. Okay, I should get involved, you know, and she's trying to figure things out and, you know, really coming from the perspective of a kid that's grown up in Australia. She doesn't fully, as you say, understand what's going on. And so she kind of puts her foot in it a little bit. And her parents are very disapproving of this because they do know uh, what the risks are. But, you know, trying to to show this experience through Leila's eyes and trying not to be too moralizing about it, right? Trying not to judge her too much as I write this story, but to say, you know, this is how a 14-year-old kid who has a heart of gold might react to the situation. And this is how they might get really in trouble. And how then the strength of her character is how she then responds to that mm. and how she learns to see this as, as an opportunity for growth and to mm. stay open to you know, to the advice of her grandmother. Mm. She sort of learns that she can turn that energy onto issues back in Australia that mm. she hadn't really thought about. So she starts to think about Indigenous yeah. peoples yeah, and, and what and, it means to them. Yeah, I thought it was important because often it's easy for us to look overseas and elsewhere how do we fix other people's problems rather than looking in our own backyards and all and and this question of her you know coming back to Australia after this really tumultuous experience and being like oh I put all my energy into that but who is suffering here where I live and and how do I you know stand in solidarity with them and she doesn't have all the answers just yet but I think it's an important thread for her to also take those lessons and to make it part of her. Now, there's one relationship that uh, we haven't talked about that I'd like to mention, and that is her relationship with her grandmother, Mm. who's incredibly understanding and wise. Any echoes of your own grandmother relationship there? (laughs) My grandmother, my mother's mum, she was an incredible woman. When I graduated from university, I went back to Sudan for six months and lived with her. And everyone in the family was kind of scared of my grandma. Fierce woman, eight kids, you know, took no rubbish from anyone. But she was also very sadly had a chronic illness where she was bed bound, right? And so, you know, I would go out in the world and have, you know, these adventures and come back and recount these stories. And she loved it. And we developed this beautiful relationship that, you know, was tempestuous and was, you know, um, chaotic in lots of ways, but also full of love and care. And I wanted to bring that kind of character to the story. And in a world where youth tends to be the thing that we valorize, I think there's so much value in remembering that you know, the women, especially the older women in our lives and in our homes and in our families have so much to offer and are of so much wonder themselves. I want to put this in a little bit of uh, context of, you know, the kind of writing that's been going on. And when I was reading your book, which you can probably gather I enjoyed immensely, it reminded me of another writer, Randa Abdul Fattah, who came to the UK uh, when her book, Does My Head Look big in this was published I remember the moment that I pulled does my head look big in this off the shelf in my local library and I was like oh my god 
she looks like me. What is this? And it just blew my mind. And I think, you know, it must have been one of the first books about hijabi protagonist in the English speaking. Like I had never read that mm-hmm. kind of story before and have have always kind of admired her writing. I've admired the fact that she brought the world that I was from or part of the world that I was from to wider audiences. And when I launched the book in Australia, Rhonda did the Q&A and, and, and it was just such an honour to, to share the stage with somebody who I'd read as a teenager, as a young teenager, and to, to sort of be, be talking about our books and what it is to, you know, bring young Muslim characters and protagonists um, to the world. It's just been, it's been amazing. But also, I mean, on one hand, it's so amazing. On the other, I'm like, how are there still so few? I think I'm so pleased that there's been so much change, but also so unsatisfied and, and pushing for more. I think both of those things exist at the same time. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely why I'm so passionate about bringing these characters to my stories because, we, you know, there's never too much, right? Never too Absolutely. much of a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I tell you what, I I would love to see both of you on a stage uh, together. I'm sure you are many times at events in um, Australia. Uh, But it's been such a delight talking to you today. Thank you you so much. It's been my pleasure. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.